Light and peace in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is not ourselves that we proclaim. We proclaim Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For the same God who said, Out of darkness let light shine, has caused his light to shine within us to give the light of revelation, the revelation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the name of Christ, we welcome you to this time of remembrance and hope. May we be steadfast in hope and work together for the reconciliation of all people. We gather this night to remember the sin and horror of slavery in our country and elsewhere in the world. We look back in sorrow for all who were taken from their homelands. We recall all who continued to suffer under the sins of racism and slavery. And we look forward to that day when all people will be seen and known as children of God. Through our prayers, 
May we be inspired to become builders of God's kingdom, wherein the dignity of every human being is respected and justice and peace may reign on the earth. But first, let us remember those who live tonight in the bondage of slavery of any kind and for those whose hearts are governed by the forces of hatred. May we also lift up to God with thanksgiving our fathers and mothers who have struggled for freedom for all God's people. For there is one body and one spirit. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Let us pray. O Lord God Almighty, as you have taught us to call the evening, the morning, and the noonday one day, and have made the sun to know it's going down, dispel the darkness of our hearts, that by your brightness we may know you to be the true God and eternal light, living and reigning forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the book of Exodus. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and that whole generation But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and bricks and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed upon them. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. A reading excerpted from 12 Years a Slave by Samuel Northup. Then turning to me, he ordered four stakes to be driven into the ground, pointing with the toe of his boot to the places where he wanted them. When the stakes were driven down, he ordered her to be stripped of every article of dress. Ropes were then brought, and the naked girl was laid upon her face, her wrists and feet each tied firmly to a stake. 
Stepping to the piazza, he took down a heavy whip and placing it in my hands, commanded me to lash her. Unpleasant as it was, I was compelled to obey him. Nowhere that day, on the face of the whole earth, I venture to say, was there such a demonic exhibition witness as then ensued. When I struck her as many as 30 times, I stopped and turned and turned round toward Epps, hoping he was satisfied. But with bitter oaths and threats, he ordered me to continue. I inflicted 10 or 15 blows more. By this time, her back was covered with long welts intersecting each other like network. She was terribly lacerated. I may say without exaggeration, literally flayed. The lash was wet with blood, which flowed down her sides and dropped upon the ground. At length, she ceased struggling. Her head sank listlessly on the ground. Her screams and supplications gradually decreased and died away into a low moan. She no longer writhed and shrank beneath the lash when it bit our small, out small pieces of her flesh. I thought that she was dying. A reading from the excerpt from The The Hypocrisy of American Slavery by Frederick Douglass. 
Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions whose chains, heavy and grievous yesterday, are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilant shouts that reach them. If I do forget, if I do not remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, may my right hand forget her cunning and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. To forget them, to pass lightly over their wrongs, and to chime in with the popular theme would be treason most scandalous and shocking and would make me a reproach before God and the world. What? Am I to argue that it is wrong to make men brutes, to rob them of their liberty, to work them without wages, to keep them ignorant of their relation to their fellow men, to beat them with sticks, to flay their flesh with the lash, to load their limbs with iron, to hunt them with dogs, to sell them at auction, to sunder their families, to knock out their teeth, to burn their flesh, to starve them into obedience and submission to their masters? Must I argue that a system thus marked with blood and stained with pollution is wrong? No, I will not. I have better employment for my time and strength than such arguments would imply. What then remains to be argued? Is it that slavery is not divine, that God did not establish it, that our doctors of divinity are mistaken? There's blasphemy in the thought. That which is inhuman cannot be divine. Who can reason on such a proposition? They that can may, I cannot. The time for such argument is past. Go search where you will. Roam through all the monarchies and despotisms of the old world. Travel through South America. Search every abuse. And when you have found the last, lay your facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation, and you will say with me that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without rival.
A reading from the book of Genesis. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. A reading of the poem, Caged Bird, by Maya Angelou. A free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream till the current ends and dips his wing in the orange sun rays and dares to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks in his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown, but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. The free bird thinks of another breeze, and the trade winds soft through the sighing trees, and the fat worms waiting on a dawn-bright lawn, and he names the sky his own. But a caged bird stands on the grave of dreams. His shadow shouts on a nightmare scream. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill for the caged bird sings of freedom.
A reading from the Gospel of Luke. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people.
This is a reading excerpted from the Other America by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Let me say another thing that's more in the realm of the spirit, I guess. That is that if we are to go on in the days ahead and make true brotherhood a reality, it is necessary for us to realize more than ever before that the destinies of the Negro and the white man are tied together. The Negro needs the white man to save him from his fear. The white man needs the Negro to save him from his guilt. We are tied together in so many ways. Our language, our music, our cultural patterns, our material prosperity, and even our food are an amalgam of black and white. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up in the destiny of America. Before the Pilgrim Fathers landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before Jefferson etched across the pages of history the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. Before the beautiful words of the Star-Spangled Banner were written, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebearers labored here without wages. They made cotton king. They built the homes of their masters in the midst of the most humiliating and oppressive conditions. And yet, out of a bottomless vitality, they continued to grow and develop. And I say that if the inexpressible cruelties of slavery couldn't stop us, the opposition that we now face, including the so-called white backlash, will surely fail. We're going to win our freedom because both the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of the almighty God are embodied in our echoing demand. And so I can still sing, we shall overcome. We shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We shall overcome because Carlisle is right. No lie can live forever. We shall overcome because William Cullen Bryan is right. Truth crushed to earth will rise again. And we shall overcome because James Russell Lowell is right. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discourse of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to speed up the day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and live together as brothers and sisters all over this great nation. That will be a great day. That will be a great tomorrow. In the words of the scripture, to speak symbolically, that will be the day when the morning stars will sing together and the Son of God will shout for joy.
A reading from Micah. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people.
a reading from The Search for Common Ground by Howard Thurman. Some there will be whose dreams will be haunted by forgotten events in which, in a moment of insight, they saw a vision of a way of life transcending all barriers alien to community. Among the elder statesmen will be those through whose blood the liquid fires of Martin Luther King's dreams swept all before it in one grand surge of beatific glory. Here and there will be those who will walk out under the stars and think lonely thoughts about whence they came and the meaning that their presence in the heavens inspires. They will wonder and ponder heavy thoughts about man and his destiny under the stars. One day, there will stand up in their midst one who will tell of a new sickness among the children who in their delirium cry for their brothers whom they have never known and from whom they have been cut off behind the self-imposed barriers of their fathers. An alarm will spread throughout the community that it is being felt and slowly realized that community cannot feed for long on itself. It can only flourish where always the boundaries are giving way to the coming of others from beyond them, unknown and undiscovered brothers. Then the wisest among them will say, what we have sought we have found, our own sense of identity. We have an established center out of which at last we can function and relate to other men. We have committed to heart and to nervous system a feeling of belonging, and our spirits are no longer isolated and afraid. We have lost our fear of our brothers and are no longer ashamed of ourselves, of who and what we are. Let us now go forth to save the land of our birth from the plague that first drove us into the will to quarantine and to separate ourselves behind self-imposed walls. For this is why we were born. Men, all men, belong to each other, and he who shuts himself away diminishes himself And he who shuts another away from him destroys himself. And all the people said, Amen.
1619, 20 and odd Negroes arrived in the English settlement we now call Virginia. Abducted, brutalized, enslaved, and transported, they were brought to the New World from their homeland of Angola, or at least that's what we renamed it. Lost forever are their native names, language, customs, and religion. What we know is Captain William Tucker took two of them, a man and a woman, into his household, renamed them, and allowed them to marry. So, Isabella and Anthony gave birth to William, the first recorded black child born in what would become the United States of America. William was baptized as an Anglican in 1624. This year in the United States and in the Episcopal Church, some will mark the 400th anniversary of the arrival of William's parents, their fellow travelers, and subsequent generations of Africans that were taken, broke, and distributed to the Americas and to the Caribbean. There's no consensus in the nation or in the church about acknowledging or marking this anniversary. Marking individual or communal participation in and benefit from past evils are rarely acknowledged or accepted. Individuals and communities regularly dodge realities in at least two ways, euphemism or denial. When it comes to Africans transported and enslaved in America, the nation and the church has employed both strategies. This is why tonight is important, to break this cycle. With the coming ashore of those first few people and William's birth and baptism was begun a wildly iterating economic, legal, political, psychological, and theological system. A system begun and enlarged for the sole purpose of creating capital to found and maintain a colony and then a nation. These are the facts of the case. As one author has put it, nearly everything that has made America exceptional grew out of slavery. This is no overstatement. Still, we avoid this inconvenient truth as individuals and stewards of institutions because, well, because it threatens our national mythology. Etched on monuments, sung as political and religious hymnody, and penned in soaring rhetoric of our, in the soaring rhetoric of our founding documents. What butchery did Thomas Jefferson do to his own conscience? as he poetically spoke of freedom and liberty by day, but slept in the arms of an enslaved African woman each night. If you go to the Jefferson Memorial, even right now, you will see on the third panel of that wonderful monument, Jefferson's oblique confession and the dread that haunted him. Quote, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever End quote. What further complicates this anniversary is the long-standing role of the Anglican Church in slavery. Hello. In the year William was baptized, 1624, the Bishop of London wrote, 
Christianity is so far from discharging men from the duties of the station and condition in which it found them. Rather, it lays upon them a stronger obligation to perform those duties, so says the Bishop of London. One wonders, given his statement, if the Bishop of London had ever read the book of Exodus and God's seeming clear bias for the enslaved Hebrews and the defeat of Pharaoh. Closer to home, those deformed ideas are etched into the founding DNA of our own institutions of higher learning. For example, the cornerstone of the University of the South, popularly known as Swanee, was laid in October, was laid in October 10, 1860, with the fo following words. The gravest mission ever entrusted to man is that of redeeming Christianity through the portholes of slavery, an inferior, subject, dependent, and necessary race on which his whole order of civilization is based. Civil war not about slavery? Spare me. What is popular to say when faced with this kind of archival documentation is simply that those were those times and that was the thinking then. We recently heard Senate Majority Leader McConnell virtually utter those exact same words, just recently. But we should remember, when it comes to the apparatus of the development of white supremacy as a theology, economy, sociology, and psychology, it is naive to underestimate its malignancy in our country, culture, and even our own souls as we breathe the air. William Faulkner's popular quote is applicable and poignant here. Tonight, the past is never dead. It's not even past. This is Toni Morrison's point from her essay entitled The Slave Body and the Black Body. She says, what is peculiar, peculiar about New World slavery is not its existence, but its conversion into the tenacity of racism. The dishonor associated with having been enslaved does not inevitably doom one's heirs to vilification, demonization, or crucifixion. What sustains these latter is racism. Just this year, Morrison's point was tragically illustrated in an article in the New York Times. The article was about Georgia. And Keith Bo Tharp, a man sentenced to death for the assault and murder of his sister-in-law, right here. Bo had been on death row for 28 years. I have met Bo. I have spoken with Bo. I have worshipped with Bo. I have taken the body and blood to Bo. Bo is an African-American. And death row, if you don't know, is in the state of Georgia. Is physically located in the heart of the diocese in Jackson, Georgia, where we kill people on your behalf. At that time, at the time of Bo's trial, a juror in the case signed an affidavit stating that, an affidavit, stating that there are two kinds of people, quote, good ones and niggers. That same juror went on to wonder out loud, 
if black people, quote, even have souls, close quote. Look, the point here is that this juror and many other citizens of our country have been successfully formed, either consciously or unconsciously, by a country, culture, and even a church, to understand that those of African descent are inferior spiritually and otherwise. That's the point. Bo's guilt or innocence in committing a crime should have been the focus of the juror, not wondering if the race of the people that he belongs to are endowed by their creator with a soul. How did the juror even get to that trajectory of speculation? Have we interrogated our own formation and speculations? How many more bows have suffered because of juries, not of their peers, that harbor and act on these same, same kind of speculations? To remember Isabella Anthony and their arrival of 400 years ago is to begin to understand that some of God's children systematically stripped away and justified the abuse and diminishing of some of God's other children and that the residue of that theft of labor and personhood lives on and is experiencing a resurgence today, breaking news. There is a safe harbor being given to hate with speeches from pulpits and presidential podiums alike these days. And safe harbor for hate is being provided by adoring crowds looking for relief from the difficulty and insecurity of modern life by accepting and amplifying ignorance dressed up as national pride. This new boldness around this old tragic creed is one part historical, as I've said, but one part futuristic. What I'm saying is, is this. Hate, xenophobia, voter suppression, mass incarceration and the militarism of local policing is increasing because white live births are down and black and brown live births are up in America. Watch the numbers, folks. Still, even given that, what propels us forward are, are the two irreducible ideas implicit in all that has been said and sung today. And that is the irreducibility of God and of neighbor. Primacy of God and dignity of neighbor are our politics and govern our menu of possible solutions to complex problems. Any other approach grieves the heart of God and corrodes the soul of the perpetrator and the victim. God and neighbor are our politics. The opportunity for all of us now on this 400th anniversary is to pledge ourselves more fully to brave actions and conversations that intentionally acknowledge and address even the most difficult parts of our life together as an American family. One home, one church, one community, one legislative session at a time. I believe that. Now, one more thing. A couple of years ago, a group of folks and I took a pilgrimage to Ghana, West Africa. Millions of Africans came to this country through the slave castles of Cape Coast. So there we were in Ghana, 
retaking the voyage, retracing the steps, reversing the exit through the door of no return. But something happened for me and for others on that trip that has encouraged me. There we were, three of us from that delegation. One of us, the Archbishop of West Africa. His name is Daniel, a man with beautiful jet black skin, shining like gold, and Ashante, the dominant group of that region for centuries. They gained their dominance by capturing other Africans and selling them to Europeans. Sitting beside him was a member of our diocese, a white woman, a South Carolinian, Charlestonian to be exact, a descendant of purchaser of slaves, a direct beneficiary of stolen labor and stolen personhood. Four of every ten Africans that came to this country came through the port of Charleston. On the other side of the table was me, a German, Irish, African-American. And this incredible conversation took place in a very holy place, in a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> Is that right? Steps were retraced in that conversation. Responsibility was accepted. Listen, the need for any contrived innocence was put to flight. Undefended. Shame was put to shame in that brave conversation. Burdens were lightened. And both agreed as I beheld that what we have is one another. And now, what we have is one another and now. What is necessary on this journey of commemoration, that is the seeing and repenting and repairing, is actually not shame, guilt, or self-flagellation by some, or disorienting rage and retaliation by others, but rather a mutual and inspired courage to interrogate our lives and our institutions for collusion with unjust systems, and then, yes, make appropriate amends. Reconnecting with Isabella, Anthony, and William and their story and their descendants' story provokes lament and hope simultaneously. When I think of them, their force, their life-giving properties, their humanity, their joy, their will, I think that it ought to be enough to forestall the reach of racism's tentacles. Ought to be enough to protect us from its uninformed, uneducated, relentless, toxic touch. Just as the commitment of this community to Jesus' vision of the beloved community ought to be enough. But allow me to let Sister Maya Angelou have the final word in my thoughts. Her words still dance in the imaginations of so many of us who are hoping and working for an America that pleases God. Do you remember what she said? She said, now if you listen closely, I'll tell you what I know. Storm clouds are gathering, 
the wind is going to blow. The race of man is suffering, and I can hear the moan, because nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that is rooted in pain, I rise. I am a black ocean, leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise into a daybreak that's wondrously clear. I rise, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. We here tonight, you and I, with this work, we are the dream and the hope of the slave. Join me to pass on the torch to a new generation so they will know of the courage, sacrifice, heroism, and lessons of the past so they will not be condemned to repeat it. We courageously dedicate our lives and In gratefulness to those who have gone before, in appreciation of the struggles of the past, acknowledging the reality of the present, and hope for the future. To nurture the young, strengthen the weak, to instill pride in the new generation, to serve as a people who will be forces for good in a broken and beautiful world. We eagerly dedicate our lives to everything. There is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time for revolution and a time for reconciliation. We commit ourselves to honor the dreams, hopes, and visions of those who have passed this way and those who are to follow. Let us pray in the words Christ has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grant, O God, that your holy and life-giving spirit may so move every human heart, especially the hearts of the people of this land, that barriers which divide us may crumble, suspicions disappear, and hatreds cease, that our divisions being healed, we may live in justice and peace, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, be with you now this night and with all who strive for justice and peace, this and forevermore. Amen.
will be the light of Christ.